Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. love like watching people and hearing comments whenever announcements are being made. Um, <laughs> like, stocks? What? Um, it's actually really ancient. In ancient Israel, they would bring livestock routinely to give as an offering. Um, <laughs> at the, okay. It's for free. <laughs> what is going on these days? Sylvia, I know that was you. Okay. Um, we're going to jump right in here. I do need to explain this week's sweater. Um, because people are confused. They're like, that's not an ugly sweater. I'm like, beauty's in the eye of the beholder, I guess. Um, but I want to tell you the story behind this sweater, and I wore it today for a specific reason. Um, a couple of years ago, I went over to mom and dad's house. If I remember the story correctly, and if I don't, I'm sure my mom will correct it. Uh, but I went over to mom and dad's house. Mom wasn't there. I told dad, I need an ugly sweater for a party. And so he took me to mom's closet. I picked one that I was certain would have been categorized in everyone's mind as an ugly sweater. I wore it on a Sunday. My mom informed me that it was one of her favorite sweaters. (laughs) So here it is. Um, It's got a little cute little snowflake up here. Um, And uh, so I just told Pete, I said, Pete, listen, this sweater identifies as an ugly sweater. So there's... Some of you are like, wait a minute. Okay, um, we're going to jump in. We are in week two of our series, Home for the Holidays. And we're really looking at um, some of the things that keep us from experiencing community, relationship, family during the holidays. And today, um, admittedly, is a little bit of a heavy topic. And so as we get into it, I want you to just be listening to what the Lord would have to say to you in light of the things we're going to be discussing. And I'm going to kick it off with 7,282 blue, blue, blue Christmases. I've told you before, my uncle was an Elvis impersonator in Memphis. Um, When I was a kid, up until about the age five, uh, he wasn't like the young Elvis Elvis impersonator. He was the older Elvis Elvis impersonator um, with the jumpsuit and the sequin belts and that season of Elvis impersonator. And so he had his belts made by the same guy in Memphis that made Elvis's belts. Um, And my grandmother thought it would be a brilliant idea when I was five to make me my own little jumpsuit with my own little belt and get me on stage with him at some of his shows. Fortunately, I have no memories or their repressed memories of this. Um, But every time a Christmas rolled around, a classic song that would come out in his repertoire was Blue Christmas, right? How many of you know it? I'll have a blue Christmas without you. Mm. 
I'll be so blue just thinking about you With your Christmas of white You'll be doing all right But I have a blue, 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 blue Christmas Yeah, yeah, yeah. My night job uh, Like, everyone else has it great I got nothing. It's going so bad. Your blue snowflakes are falling. You know, just this depressing, the most depressing Christmas song ever. Uh, and, but it's surprising, actually, how many Christmas movies have this theme built into them of abandonment, loneliness, in particular, um, orphans and the fatherless around this time of year. I'll give you a few examples. Um, uh, Miracle on 34th Street. How many have seen Miracle on 34th Street? How many people under 20 have seen Miracle on 34th Street? Oh, good. Three. Uncultured swine. Um, uh, This is like a Christmas classic. Now, my wife doesn't like any of the old Christmas movies. Stop it. So... Not even the ones that are in Technicolor now. But anyways, uh, this one's a classic. And it really didn't strike me until a while back that the entire um, movie is actually built around the relationship uh, between Doris Walker and her daughter Susan. And Doris has gone through a really ugly divorce. And she's decided that fantasy has no place in their life. And so they don't believe in Santa Claus. And then Chris Kringle shows up at Macy's and is Santa, and now they've got this dilemma in front of them, right? And, but really, the whole story is built around this wound that she has experienced in a broken relationship and a messy divorce, and now you've got a young girl who doesn't have a dad and a mother who doesn't have a husband, and now they're trying to figure life out. Or um, uh, uh, A Christmas Carol. Another classic that we don't get to watch in my house. Um, uh, The George C. Scott one is my favorite. There's a musical Christmas Carol. I'm hoping the pressure I'm putting on in this service will actually produce some results down the road in my house. Uh, But (laughs) she's a keep hoping, honey. Um, uh, But the Christmas Carol. And, and I don't know if you remember, but in the movie, there's this like pivotal moment where, um, where the guys show up and they're collecting money for the orphanage and for the poorhouse, and, and his response to them when they want to receive money, they let him know how many people are dying of starvation. And he says, well, they might as well get on with it. Go ahead and die and decrease the surplus population. There's too many mouths to feed anyways. And fast forward to when the ghost of Christmas present shows up. When the ghost of Christmas present shows up, he shows up with two of these orphans, and he's like, you want to tell them that, right? And it's this moment in the movie. Or, or maybe um, uh, ones that are uh, getting closer to our time, Annie. The entire story of Annie is built around her going from the orphanage, which is a horrific place that she's living, to being with Mr. Warbucks for two weeks during Christmas. And this story of a, an orphaned girl finding a father figure in her life and the celebration that comes with that and the challenge that it is. Or maybe one that um, maybe, maybe you know about is Elf. In fact, <laughs> in first service, I was like, that's what it looks like when I sit on Pastor Dale's lap. Um, uh, <laughs> should have saved it for third service. We're not online then, but there it is. Uh, The whole story is built around the discovery, which we're all like, well, you should have known, but the discovery that he's actually not an elf, (laughs) 
that he was adopted and that his dad wanted nothing to do with him. And so he's now on this journey to go and find his biological dad. And when he does, he still wants nothing to do with him. The whole story is built around this um, rejection, abandonment, loneliness that he is experiencing along the way. It's interesting how many stories are built around that, but I don't know if you know this, right now, actually, in Alaska, um, there are 3,000 children in foster care during the holiday season. 3,000 kids who aren't in their home and can't go back to their home for the holidays. There are actually, on any given night, 2,000 Alaskans who don't have a home. Some of them will find shelters, but they don't have a home for the holidays. The 3,000 kids in foster care, 2,000 each night um, experiencing homelessness, and 2,300 Alaskans who are in incarceration. They cannot go home for the holidays. 7,282-ish are actually unable to experience community, relationship, fellowship at home with family this time of year. What's interesting to me is that those are the numbers for people who can't or won't be able to experience that, and yet for many of us, the opportunity is actually in front of us. We have the freedom to, the liberty to, and yet many of us will actually not experience what we were created to enjoy for reasons that have nothing to do with incarceration or homelessness or foster care. In fact, I want to look at those reasons for the next few moments together. And those reasons actually really boil down to three things, abandonment, abuse, and alienation. When I think about this idea of being abandoned, there are um, many reasons why we would feel like we've been abandoned. And some of them are legitimate, and some of them aren't. Like maybe they left, and you're the one who stayed. They abandoned you. Or maybe you're the one who left, but they never stayed in contact. They never followed up with you. They never checked in on you. You moved to Alaska, and you never heard from them again. Or you moved on to something new, and they didn't stay caught up. Maybe there's a good reason that they left. Maybe there wasn't a good reason that they left. But there are lots of reasons why we can feel abandoned. And the question is, what will we do with those feelings of abandonment? Because the reality is that what we feel is simply ours. It actually doesn't matter if you think I should feel that way or not. It is what I'm feeling. And the question becomes, what will I do with that feeling or abuse? Abuse is an interesting word today in our culture because it's actually um, all kinds of things have fallen under the umbrella of abuse. But you actually have to define what you're talking about when you talk about abuse today. That maybe um, they really aren't safe for you to be around. Or maybe you just don't feel safe around them. Maybe, well, definitely, there are situations that you should not stay in because of abuse. You recognize that, right? I mean, there are situations, even if it's for the sake of the safety of children or for your own safety, there are situations in which you should not remain because abuse is happening. And there are other situations in which I just feel abused. And you have to ask yourself a question in those situations. Should I run or should I engage? 
There are situations in which you and I actually should show back up over and over and over again for the love of Christ to be displayed in those situations. And I'm just going to say this out loud because, um, honestly, I think it's my generation's fault. Um, The generation before us, um, I feel like, primarily looked at life and said, this is what life has dealt me. i got to deal with it. We've got to move on. I've got to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I don't have time to sit around and whine and complain about everything that happened to me in life. But my generation, we were the first generation that discovered that we could blame our parents for all of our problems. And so we go endlessly to counselors trying to figure out how our parents screwed us up so bad. And my generation really owned this sort of identity. And a friend of mine told me years ago, he said, our generation figured out that we could blame our parents for all of our problems. What this next generation will do is they'll actually blame their children for all of their problems. And I can't tell you how often I hear people say, if it wasn't because of my kids, we'd be doing so much better. We're generations that have learned how to blame other people for everything going on in our lives. And the reality is that in some relationships, I've just been too sensitive, and I keep running to my safe place. And yet in reality, their salvation may be more important than my safe place. That I may actually bear a responsibility in those relationships to keep engaging so that they could experience the love of Christ. Abandonment, abuse, and alienation. I don't know, maybe they said to you, you're not welcome around here anymore, right? Maybe that's literally what you were told, or maybe you just feel like you aren't welcome around here anymore. I've discovered over the years that um, when I believe someone believes something about me, they think something about me, they've communicated something to me inadvertently, um, often I find that the longer I stay away from them, the more convinced I am that they hate me. And yet, over and over again, when I will just engage in relationship, in conversation, no matter what offense has taken place, if I would just engage in relationship, I discover in an instant, just by being together, that their affection for me is still there, and mine is there for them. In fact, I would say it this way, nine times out of ten, if I will just engage in a conversation with someone that I think is against me, I will actually discover quickly that they aren't. And yet, the more time I spend alienated from them, the more convinced I become in my own mind that they feel all of these ways about me. I have it happen to me all the time. People are like, I tried to say hi to you in the grocery store, and you scowled at me, made demon eyes, and then spit on me. I'm like, I don't even remember seeing you. Like, I'm sure we passed each other, and none of those things were in my heart. Like, like I don't. But in their mind, they believe that I'm fundamentally against them enemy loves to play this trick. And what he loves to do is keep you alienated from one another because he knows the moment you come together, you will often, more often than not, discover that those things aren't actually even present. And that relationship could be mended in an instant. And sometimes we believe they just don't want us around, so we stop coming around, and then we never experience the relationship we were intended to experience again. I know, it's sad. Now, unaddressed, these things ultimately lead to the same result, especially this time of the year, these feelings of anger and loneliness. In fact, this time of year, it ramps up significantly. These issues of abandonment, abuse, and alienation, and anger and loneliness are the results. And sometimes um, situations leave us with loneliness, and sometimes we actually choose to be lonely. Some things should make us angry, 
And there are some things that shouldn't make us angry. But here are the two questions I want to address in our few moments here. The first one is this. Am I actually lonely or am I really alone? Like, am I really alone or do I just feel lonely? And the second one is, if I am angry, then why am I angry and why would I choose to stay that way? Because there's actually something you can do with your anger. There's something I can do with my anger. And there's a really clear pathway laid out in the scriptures, which brings me to seeing red. Um, the past two weeks have been uniquely challenging for me personally. They've been challenging for me on a personal level. They've been challenging for me on a leadership level as well. Uh, for about a year, and this is... Um, public information as of last Sunday now, but for about a year, um, I've been trying to navigate some things with one of our campus pastors and have just discovered that we keep coming to an impasse over and over and over again. And finally, the time arrived that I felt like we need to make some decisions about this situation. And so, um, unlike me, sometimes people don't respond really well. What I've discovered is that when those situations become really challenging, when it's hard to separate those lines from the right thing to do in terms of employment and those kinds of things and personal offenses, man, we can just get all wrapped around the axle about what's going on. And it can actually create a lot of work for us. And in our case in particular, and this matters to you because it affects us at the Wasilla campus directly, in our case in particular, I recognize that the person who needed to step into the role at our Willow campus was actually Pastor Dale and Frankie. They're the perfect people for the situation, and yet for me personally, and probably for many of you, it's like, what? They're the only ones here old enough to have wisdom. Like, <laughs> they're such a gift to the body, and yet I recognize in this situation it will cost us here for provision to be made for them there. And I find myself like, Oh, it's so frustrating to me. And I could get so amped up over the whole thing. I could see it all just through my own filter, through my own lens. And the truth is, it doesn't matter whether it's in the family of God or it's in your nuclear family, problems will arise. Hurts will happen. Offenses will come. It's inevitable. Get over it. Get used to it. The question is, what will we do with those things? And I want to lay out a pathway for you back into relationship, back into community, back into being home for the holidays. And here it is. It involves four steps. Remember, repent, reciprocate, which I had to look up how to spell, and repeat. Remember, repent, reciprocate, and repeat. At number one, remember. Remember how you have been treated by God. I think this is actually the first step when we experience an offense and everything in us wants to react and respond in kind, is that we actually need to pause for a moment and we need to remember how we have been treated by God. This is an exercise I've done for years. It's a really um, humbling and embarrassing exercise in that every time I do it, I'm like, things are in perspective now. But I'll take an offense that comes my way, something that someone has done to me, and it really is sort of irrelevant if it's my perception or it's reality of what they actually did to me. But I will take it to the foot of the cross in prayer. 
I'll imagine in my mind's eye that I'm at the foot of the cross. Jesus is hanging there, having been tortured and crucified, literally having had his heart pierced with a spear. And I will kneel down at the foot of the cross and I will say to him, you can't believe how mean they've been to me. This is what they did to me. And when I put it in that perspective, it doesn't mean that the offense isn't real. It doesn't mean that it didn't hurt. It just puts it in perspective for me. In fact, I was talking with someone a little while ago, and I was just um, acknowledging that um, the reason I do this is not so that Jesus can shame me for being hurt, but so that he can tell me that he can relate to me, and he has a pathway through it. It's actually the beauty for what it's worth of something like a crucifix, right? The image of Jesus crucified on the cross. It is declaring to me that he has experienced what I have experienced. He has walked through what I have walked through, and he has a pathway forward for me through it. He's not telling me that I don't feel it. He's telling me that I can overcome it. But I thought um, it's actually true also of kneeling at the manger, Because this time of year, we're coming to the season where we celebrate the birth of the Messiah. And if your um, nativity set is anything like my nativity set, one, it's not biblical because the wise men are there and they were not there. And we don't know if there were three. I've been through all that before. So on our nativity set, they just move them a little ways away from the manger. It's like they're on their way. Year three, they're going to show up, whatever. Uh, But all that aside, um, that's the black and white me. Um, uh, The reality is that we look at this as sort of this serene moment, this peaceful moment. The angels are singing. This is a blessed moment, peace on earth, goodwill to men. And yet, if you were to see it from Jesus' perspective, the sacrifice begins at the manger. I mean, listen to the description in John chapter 1. This is John describing where Jesus was, what Jesus was doing, who Jesus was before he came into the world. John 1, verse 2. He, Jesus, existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. Verse 10, he came into the very world he created, but the world did not recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. Or Philippians 2, 5 through 8. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a servant and was born as a human being. For Jesus, in light of what he had left, sovereignty, omnipotence, all-powerful, all of those things, he had left all of that. He had left control and everything to come in the form of an infant, of a child, totally dependent on the very beings that he had created for his safety and provision and security. That from the moment Jesus was born, the sacrifice began. His entire life was a sacrificial life for you and I. And when I begin to think about that, and when I kneel there at the manger, and I talk about what I'm experiencing in life, and I hear Jesus say back to me, listen, I get it and you're not alone, and you can make it, and I have everything you need. It begins to put it into perspective for me. I would say it this way. When I remember his sacrifice, I am able to extend grace rather than demand justice in my own circumstances. When I remember his sacrifice, I am able to extend grace instead of demanding justice 
in my own situations because that is exactly what he has done for me. That's good. I know. I know. That's why the Bible said it. Remember, the second thing is this. Remembering leads me to repentance. In those moments, not for the sake of shaming me, does he reveal these things, but for the sake of bringing me back to him, refocusing, redirecting. Repentance means to return to. And in those moments when I'm remembering what he has done for me, I begin to step into a life of repentance. And there is nothing that brings me to repentance faster than remembering how good the good news really is. That while I was yet a sinner, while I was opposed to him, it wasn't a misunderstanding. It was clear that I was opposed to him, that while I was yet a sinner, he laid his life down for me. Every time I remember the message of the gospel, I'm led to this place of repentance and turning back to him, which brings me to the third piece, which is reciprocate. Why would I not extend this to others if it's been extended to me so many times in such pronounced ways? Why would I withhold the very thing that has been given to me? How does what I've experienced from God shape my responses to others? In fact, it's the exact question in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Here's what it says. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? I know you. I can see how patient he must be, right? Like, I know me. I can see. Don't you see how patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin or to turn you to repentance. Or this one in Colossians 3, 13 through 15. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us together in perfect harmony, and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. Man, remember, repent, and then reciprocate to others. Now, Peter has a legit question in regards to this reciprocating. Doing in kind what was done to you, sort of the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But in this case, it's do unto others as has already been done unto you by God. And so, how many times, Peter wants to know, which sounds like a legit question to me. In fact, I can almost imagine that in Peter's mind, he's thinking of specific circumstances with some of the other disciples. Like, you can't imagine how many times John has done this to me. So, so Jesus, how many times should I extend forgiveness? The kind that's been extended to me. How many times should I do this? And Jesus is like, that's a great question. Peter, let me give you a really simple answer. Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came and said... Uh, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? And then Peter throws out a number. How about seven whole times? And the Lord says, no, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. You can do the math, it's 490. But it's actually not the point. The point that he's actually making is that it's until perfection. It's completion. It's fullness. Uh, these numbers represent, actually, it doesn't end. You could try and keep track. And there are days, trust me, there are days I think I hit the 490 mark in that day. Like, they did that this many times, and I should stop now. But he's saying you don't keep track. 
that in the same way the Father hasn't kept track with you? Like how many times have you gone back and asked for forgiveness for the same thing? How many times should you have gone back? And Listen, this is ongoing. It doesn't mean you stay in every situation, but this idea of extending forgiveness and grace is actually central to your ability to live in the grace and forgiveness that has been extended to you and I. So remember, repent, reciprocate, and repeat. In fact, Jesus goes on to tell a parable, and in his parable, he tells a story about a king who decides that he's going to call all of his accounts from his servants, money that they borrowed from him. He wants that money back, and so they all come before him, and he gets to one of his servants, and this man owes him millions of dollars in today's money, and he says to him, it's time to pay up, and the man says, I don't have it. I can't pay it. If you can't pay up, then you'll need to go to prison, right? You'll need to be cast into prison until everything can get get paid back. And so the man falls on his face, and he pleads with the king. He says, give me a little bit more time, and I will come up with it. He was never going to be able to come up with it, but he genuinely wants to make it right. And the king says to him, you know what? Because of your attitude, I'm actually going to forgive it. I'm not asking you to pay it back. You don't owe me anything I have covered the debt. Now, here's the thing about forgiveness. Somebody has to pay when it comes to forgiveness. And when you and I are choosing not to forgive, we're actually saying, um, you owe me. And until you pay me back, whether it's saying sorry, whether it's some uh, recompense that you're going to bring to me, but you owe me something, and I'm going to hold on to that debt until you're willing to pay it back. But in this case, the king says, you don't owe me anything. It is forgiven, which means the king loses the money. Somebody has to pay, and he says, I will, instead of you. Man, super grateful. He leaves the courtroom, and then he goes out, and he finds a fellow servant, and he grabs him by the throat, and he says, you owe me a couple thousand dollars, and you're going to pay it back right now, or I am throwing your whole family in jail until I get all of my money. And the man does the same thing. He falls down. He says, give me a little bit more time, and I will pay it back. And the man, instead of reciprocating what he had just received, says no, and throws him in prison. All the other servants are watching this, and they are flabbergasted. And so they go back to the king, and they say, you're not going to believe what he just did. Like, we all saw what you did for him. And then he immediately left this environment and said, I will not forgive your debt. And so the king calls him back in. He says, you wicked servant. How could you not recognize what had been done for you and then refuse to extend it to others? You will actually experience the consequences of your actions. And here's how he wraps the whole thing up. Matthew 18, verse 35, this is what Jesus says, that's what my heavenly Father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. It's interesting, it sounds like this threat, but it isn't actually intended to be a threat. It's actually intended to be a reminder, an illustration of how gracious God has been to us and how ridiculous it must seem when we won't extend it to one another. And there are consequences to not forgiving. Unforgiveness says, you owe me and I will make you pay. And in light of the grace, the gift of grace we've been given, unforgiveness seems rather greedy. 
from God's perspective. Which brings me to all by myself. The second question is, am I lonely or am I actually alone? Because those are two different things. And often this feeling of loneliness, this feeling of isolation, this feeling of abandonment can lead us to separating from all of our other relationships and actually being alone. And yet you're probably surrounded by people right now who would love to be in community with you. And what I've discovered over the years is that loss is inevitable. Loneliness is often a choice. Relationships come and they go, sometimes because of death in our lives, sometimes because relationships fall apart. Relationships can come and go. Loss is inevitable, but loneliness is often a choice that we make. And the people I've watched who move from loneliness to community usually do two things fairly well. The first thing is this, that um, usually they will make room in their hearts for replacements. Often when we lose something relationally, we believe that that thing could never, ever be replaced. And, and so we sort of settle into this place that nothing could ever fill that gap. And we begin to live as though nothing. And what we actually do is allow nothing to ever fill that gap in our lives. I think about friends of mine who have had some of their best friends in the world move out of state. And now there's so much distance between them, and the relationship is never going to be like it was when you were in proximity, when you could hang out at each other's house, when you could go to Anchorage together, when you could do all of these sorts of things. And yet what they wrestle with is recognizing that new relationships can emerge in a season when those have been lost. But that's a choice that you and I actually have to make. We have to create room for those replacements to happen because God is wanting to bring them into our lives, even with the loss of a parent. I know in those moments, it seems like that will never be able to be replaced, and yet Paul declares routinely to the churches that he is investing in that he has become a father to them, that God would bring spiritual mothers and fathers into our lives if we would allow room for that in our lives. But often in the place of sadness and despair, we can settle into choosing to be alone when actually relationship is available. The second thing, though, is this. Not only do they make room for their hearts and their hearts for replacement, but they become to others what they themselves have lost. 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 16, Paul writing to the church in Corinth, he says, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children, for you may have countless instructors in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. He's extending an invitation to them to experience relationship, to experience the relationship of a parent with a child if their hearts would be open to it. I'll tell you, the reason I wore this sweater today is um, my mom is probably one of the best examples of this that I've ever seen. And many of you know her. Uh, My mom, um, whether you want it or not, will mother you. (laughs) My mom um, is the kind of person who is always looking for purpose in life. What am I supposed to be doing? How am I supposed to engage? And here's what you need to know. 
My mom has actually experienced a lot of loss over the past few years. My grandfather, her dad, passed away many, many, many years ago. But over the past few years, her mom has passed away. Her older brother has passed away. Her older sister has passed away. Her younger sister has passed away. All of her family is gone. And during those times when that moment is upon you, you can see the sadness. You can see the sense of like, I will never have that again. I will never engage in that relationship the way I've engaged in that relationship my entire life. And yet here's what my mom has done. She has become so proactive in becoming the very thing that she has lost to others. And so they're routinely going down to the lower 48, to Tennessee and Louisiana, to see all of my cousins whose parents are now gone or whose mothers are now gone. And my mom will make a, a point to stop by every one of their houses. It must drive my dad crazy because you know how social he is. Like she stops at every one of their houses and just sits with them and tells them stories about their mom, about relationship growing up over the years. But what she's actually doing is she's becoming for them the thing that she's lost herself. And in so doing, finding extraordinary purpose and healing in her own life. In fact, she does it right here. Uh, I mean, if you've met her, you know exactly what I'm talking about, that she is on a mission to become the thing that often she has experienced loss in. And in so doing, is finding purpose and healing and meaning. I want to invite you to stand with me. This time of year, as I think about the nativity, as I think about the scene, in fact, I have a picture of a nativity set that's almost identical to ours, except for they got it wrong because the wise men are too close to the manger. As I think about this time of year, I'm reminded all over again that this sacrifice of Christ didn't begin on the cross, it began in a manger. He left everything that is, that was rightfully his. He had access to that God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, was born into our world. He experienced being helpless and weak and he grew up in our world. He lived and loved and lost loved ones in our world. He was hurt, he was hated, he was betrayed, he was abandoned by our world, and yet he still so loved our world that he gave us the greatest gift we could ever be given, his own life. Forgiveness, mercy, grace in the place of justice and judgment. And if he could do that, he could do it over and over and over again for me, and I believe he has everything I need to do that in my relationships. Over and over and over. If I would remember, I would repent, and I would reciprocate, and I would repeat, I could experience relationship that he's designed me to experience. And so Jesus, we look to you, the one who didn't just come to die, but the one who came to live a sacrificial life. Holy Spirit, we would invite you to invade our space. We would invite you to challenge and confront. I invite you to do that thing that only you can do, and that is bring about transformation through mere words, that you would cause those words to take root, that they would grow, and they would bear transformation 
in our lives, that our minds would be renewed by you, that we would see the world through your eyes, and that we would find ourselves free to be home for the holidays. In Jesus' name. As we wrap up here, I want to read Hebrews 13, 1 through 5. Keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, for some who have done this have entertained angels without realizing it. Remember those in prison as if you were there yourself. Remember also those being mistreated as if you felt their pain in your own bodies. Give honor to marriage, remain faithful to one another in marriage. God will surely judge people who are immoral and those who commit adultery. Don't love money, or be uh, but be satisfied with what you have. For God said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. You are not alone. And there's always room at the table in the family of God. Hey, Church on the Rock, grace and peace to you. God bless you and Merry Christmas. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play. Thank you.